From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. How do you measure mental toughness? What are some of the variables you would look at? That's a very, very important question because there are other sort of you know, concepts in the same world. People will talk about mindset and there's a, an American called Carol Dweck has developed this idea of growth mindset. You see that a lot. There's positive psychology. There's Professor Seligman's developed this idea of learned optimism. There's Angela Duckworth has developed an idea of grit. Actually, if you look at all three of those and other models, they're all encompassed by our model. And that's really, we've taken all of that thinking, taken it onto another level and joined it up. And we found there are eight components to mental toughness. And just very briefly, the first two are life control. That's where the sense of can do sits, sense of self-worth. So basically, that's what Vera described earlier. If something happens to you or you're asked to do something, you can either think, I'll give that a go. Don't know whether you're going to be able to do it, but I'll give that a go. Or you can say, yeah, I don't fancy that. I don't think I can do that. Don't, I think that's beyond me. The difference is entirely mental. You know, you might have exact, both people might have exactly the same abilities, knowledge, skills, training, education. Yet one will say no and one will say yes. And that purely because of the mental approach. The second one is emotional control. That's really about emotional management. Again, if something happens to us, we experience an emotion. We can't stop emotions. If somebody annoys us, we get angry. If somebody pleases us, we're happy. But the challenge is, it's not always good to reveal that. So, if, you know, somebody annoys us, you can let rip. and That won't necessarily help the situation. But if you maintain poise, you can bring the situation under control. It can be, be very effective. Now, some of us are able to manage our emotions and not allow them to dictate our actions and our decisions. Other people can't. Again, that difference is purely mental. So that's, that's two of the factors. And the other two, the next two are around getting things done. And the two elements are, we call it goal orientation. And it's about, that's about visualizing what you need to do or what you want to do. So do you have a sense of purpose? Purpose is very important here. You know, if I'm doing something, I'll do it more will willingly if I can see its worth, its value. If it's, if there's a purpose, if there's no purpose, I can't get excited about it. I can set goals for it. And that's the big Achilles healing goal setting. Companies will ask you to set goals. And if they don't give you the purpose, yeah, yeah, you'll set the goals, but you'll never do anything with them. So it's, a, but some of us are capable of visualizing where we need to go. Some of us can't. It's mental. It's a mental difference. Then even if you've set goals, then you don't necessarily achieve goals. So the next element is achievement orientation. And that's really about, am I mentally prepared to make the effort I need? to achieve my purpose and deliver my goals. Now, some people will be mentally 
attuned to do that. I'm afraid that's one of my qualities, my personal qualities. It's an advantage and a disadvantage at the same time. But some people can't do it. They just don't feel like making the effort. Even if they know it's the most worthwhile thing on the planet, they just don't want to make the effort. Again, it's a mental thing. It's not a physical thing. They'll be just as physically capable as me, but they won't do it. And so those elements that I've just described broadly describe what we would commonly call resilience. Resilience is the, the ability to recover from an adverse situation. That's the definition you'll find in a dictionary. And what that means is if something goes wrong, can I pick myself up, dust myself off and carry on going? Well, if I have those senses of control, I'll have those senses of commitment, then I'll think, yeah, I can still do it. I'm not going to let my emotions get in the way and I'm still going to make the effort. And the challenge with resilience, and it is a valuable quality, we need resilience, is that it's a passive quality and it's a quality that helps us to survive. Now, if you are repeatedly exposed to situations where you need to demonstrate resilience, it is quite often the case that your resilience will be worn down. But a very clever woman researcher in America, a woman called Cabasa, working with senior executives in organizations, realized that what got them into the positions they got to wasn't just that they were resilient, but they deliberately put their resilience into play because they were more positive. And so she found that there was something called challenge. Now, she did a lot of work around that, and unfortunately, it was pretty much ignored until, I would say, the last 15 years, people have suddenly rediscovered it. And we've been able to explain that. So one component is risk orientation. And what that simply means is, you know, many, many times in our lives, we are faced with a situation where we've got to do something new, something different. What we've got doesn't work anymore. Or somebody asks us to go to a new country to set up an operation, to go to Japan. I can't speak the language. Some people, the mental response will be, wow, that's great. That's an opportunity. You know, other people will say, oh my God, oh, I don't think I'm going to do that. That's a threat. So some people are capable of seeing opportunity in new situations, in, you know, stretching themselves and other people will see threat in the same. It's a mental difference. It's exactly the same. And then what we found was there's a, a something that's attached to that and that's called learning orientation. So if you did, if you were risk orientated and you tried new things and you went to Japan, you nearly always, you're going to get it wrong. Now, some people, if they get it wrong, their reaction then is to say, oh, I didn't like that, bin it, I'm never doing that again, and they walk away. Other people will say, oh, that was uncomfortable. I wonder, could I have done that better? Let me think about it. Let me talk to some people, and I think I'm going to be able to do it better next time. So some people, when they go through life, learn from everything that happens to them. Other people... Don't they sort of walk around like ostriches with their head in the well, don't know whether an ostrich can walk around with their head in the sand, but you can probably walk around in circles. But you get you get my meaning. So those two qualities, when you bring them together, what she found was 
the most successful people were people who said, well, I'll give it a go. And even if it doesn't work, I'm going to learn something, but I'm going to keep giving it a go. And that quality gave them that, that might be a superpower in its own right, because the research now shows with that sort of attitude, you actually have more energy. Your resilience will eventually sap your energy, but challenge brings stores of energy because you want to do it. And then the final piece of the jigsaw was what Peter Clough developed, and that was understanding confidence. And confidence is about self-belief in your abilities. So it differs from the first thing I spoke about, which that's about self-belief in yourself. This is about self-belief in your abilities, because as we... As we grow, well, I mean, from almost from birth, we learn things, we learn how to do things, but, and we have abilities. But some of us, even when we've got lots of abilities, will still doubt our abilities, still think we can't do it, or still think other people have got more than I have. And if that's the case, they're often inclined not to use their abilities because they don't want to expose themselves in some way. They think somebody else would be better at this than me. Where, when they will be perfectly good. They may be the best person for it. And we saw that very clearly in the big program that we did with customs and exercise a few years ago. We saw incredibly talented people back out exercises and let lesser talented people take over. And that's because that's a mindset thing. You know, it's purely mindset because they have the ability. And that's demonstrating something about the relationship between ability and mindset. Ability is important, but it's nothing without the right mindset attached to it. And the last component is interpersonal confidence. That's describing the extent to which you are minded to engage with other people. And it's important because it's describing also your, the, the, the extent to which you wish to influence other people the extent to which you want to learn from other people. And there's pretty not much nothing you can do in life entirely on their own. I mean, some IT people might argue that they can sit in front of a computer and do their job without engaging with other people, and maybe they can't. For the rest of us, we need people. And, but some of us are not very good at connecting with people, and we don't have the confidence to deal with people. And... For that reason, we will not often, will often not prosper. So again, that's a mental difference. So those are the eight components. I get a buzz out of doing psychometric tests. I love them. But I was surprised after, so I got to have a go at taking the ones by APR International. And I was surprised the scores ended up being lower, much lower <laughs> than I expected. And normally like, oh, like you get a critical intelligence or literacy like a metric test, and I normally do above average, so I was surprised what was going on there and what, what happens for somebody else if they also get a lower score than expected, what can they do? Right, well, that's, that's a really very useful question because there are different types of psychometric tests. There are ability tests, and in ability tests, they're not really just ability tests. And you can get a position where you're above average or below average. With personality measures, there are two kinds of personality measures. There are what they call ipsative measures, and those are really questionnaires that ask you your opinion about you. And the, 
They don't do what our, our measure does. Ours is a normative measure. We've gone out and in this particular case, we have tested about just short of 80,000 people around the world. And we've created a norm. And what we've said is on a scale of one to 10, the average person would score 5.5. And if somebody scores less than that, they're more mentally sensitive. And above that, they're more mentally tough. Now, it's important to understand mentally tough doesn't mean mentally strong or good. Mentally tough, does, mentally sensitive doesn't mean weak or bad. Most people on the planet score between four and seven. So if you score between that range, you are like most people. You can deal with most things in life, but there will be things that throw you from time to time. That's normal. That's what a normal person looks like. So we, we, we're not kind of judgmental in the way that you've understood it. We're not saying you are above or below normal. The second thing is you are who you are and this, this is who you are and the key is self-awareness. So one question that we get often asked that's relevant here, can a mentally tough person be a failure? And the answer is yes. Can a mentally sensitive person be a success? The answer is yes. So I'll give you an example because going back to you know, one of the scales that I mentioned. So, you know, the life control scale. Somebody who scores, say, seven or eight on that life control scale will be above average. That will be somebody with a strong sense of can do. Every time you ask them to do something, they'll go and have a go. And they have a great belief in themselves that they can do anything, anything that's thrown at them. Is that a strength or a weakness? Well, I'll answer for you then. Most people would see it as a, as a strength. Now, just think about it for a minute and say, well, but this person, if they're asked to do something that's really impossible, they'll still have a go. I'll waste all the time and energy doing it. Is that a strength or a weakness? You would probably say, well, that's a weakness. Well, this person will also not plan his time very well because they'll have a go at everything. So every time you ask them to do something, well, they'll go up and have a go. Is that a strength or a weakness? Well, most people would say, well, it sounds like a weakness. And you say, well, hang on. You've just said this is this person's score is a strength. Now you're telling me it's a weakness. Which is it? And I think this is one of the things that maybe we can discuss this another time, but we misunderstand what strengths and weaknesses are. Right? We use, we describe it in terms of advantage and disadvantage. So having that high score is an advantage in some settings and a disadvantage in others. So whether it's a strength or a weakness depends on the circumstances. Right? But you are who you are. And so why would you be able to have a strength or a weakness in a particular circumstances? Only if you're self-aware, only if you understand yourself and because you could then develop strategies and tactics to deal with situations where, you know, your normal response would be a weakness. You go to the other end, somebody is mentally sensitive. That person will generally shirk from having to go at things. That's good, bad, strength or weakness. Most people would say, well, that's not very good. That's a weakness. That person will not jump in with two feet into a difficult situation. Is that a strength or a weakness? 
oh, yeah, that's possibly a strength now. Again, well, which is it? And again, it's a situation. That is that person's response. That's who that person is. And that person has learned to respond to life in that way. So we don't, we avoid all the judgmental stuff that you often see around psychometric tests and, and these kind of models. You are who you are. The trick is to become self-aware. That's the superpower. Can I show you how to look inside your head and see who you are? so that you can be the best version of you that you can be. You can work out what you need to do every time you come across a situation when you need to do it. And sort of in general, what we find, what do we do? Our, our, we have loads of coaches and people that work around the world with this. When they get involved in, in executive coaching, the most common call from a senior person in a big organization is, I'm Superman. I've got to the top of this organization. I'm the most brilliant person in this organization. Why won't everybody follow me? And you say to them, well, the qualities that got you to the top are also the qualities that are now switching people off. Because if I should go back to that little example before of life control, we talk to somebody who's got a very high sense of life control, you know, maybe scoring nine or 10 on that scale. They're so confident about themselves being able to do anything, they can't see that other people haven't got that same level of confidence. And so their response, you'll hear this in any organization. Every time I use this phrase, people nod their heads. The, the common phrase they'll use is, well, I can do it. Why can't you? And as soon as they say is that language, they've given themselves away. You are you, who you are. The people around you are not you. They have bring other qualities to, to the business, to your team, but they're not you. And, and some of the penny drops, you mean I'm switching my staff off? Yeah. Why am I switching my staff off? Because I'm mentally tough. So it's not about mentally, mental toughness or mental sensitivity being a strength or weakness. It's about self-awareness to be able to manage with strengths or weakness. And then oddly enough, you know, pe people always think, well, other advantages of being mentally sensitive. Well, one, to pull a couple of big advantages are they often don't burn out, you know, because they're held back. They know they can, they can sense overload and they'll switch off. The other one is they tend in general to be creative in a different way to the mentally tough. The mentally tough, not always, but the mentally tough will often be more structured with their creativity. The mentally sensitive or tend to be more intuitive. So if you really want, you know, we spoke about creativity and curiosity, you really want creativity and curiosity in your organization and optimize every ounce, you need to use all of that. And yet, typically, a mentally tough person won't listen to a mentally sensitive person unless they're self-aware. So it's a long answer to your question, but you, you've asked a very simple question that it's gotten oodles of complexity around it. If you could give one tip to people out there to help them build mental toughness, what might that be as something that they could do practically? I think that, that there are loads and loads of tools and techniques. The one thing we know about them all is they all work, but they don't all work for all people. And the reason for that is the differences in mental toughness. So if you try to bring a confidence building 
exercise to somebody who's got very low levels of confidence in their abilities, they're not going to get it. So you've got to understand the person to match the technique. But I suppose in general, the one of the techniques that has got most evidence for, and I think it's got a widest impact, is something called self-talk. So people, it's very popular in the world of sport, and it's simply to remove negative language in your head and replace it with positive language. Because what's the way you think affects your language and your language affects what you do. And the simplest test for that is listening to somebody and say, here's something, can you do it? If somebody says straight away, yeah, just leave it with me, that's fine. If they start saying, using conditional language, if, but, could, should, you know that they're already hesitating and may even be thinking of reasons why they can't do it. And again, that's simply, it's a mental thing. Now, they don't know that they can't do it, but they're already thinking they can't do it. So the more that you can remove that language, that negative language, um, the more positively you will approach things. I would say that that's probably the easiest thing. I consciously, once I learned about this technique, I've tried to remove the word but from everything you do. You can't remove that word entirely from your vocabulary, but it's really interesting. If you're in a meeting, how often you'll find that meeting is slowed down, is, is ruined by people saying, yes, but. <laughs> and you find yourself suddenly wading through mud and people are finding reasons why you can't do something or can't agree something. When if they sort of became more positive, they'd find a solution. So I would say that, but in general, there's a, it's an area of developments. I would say attentional control. That was learning how to focus, how to focus better and how to focus for longer is probably the most powerful thing that people can do. And it's one of the easiest things to do. Well, not easy, but it's, it's a comparatively easy thing to do. And it can transform things for you. So for instance, we know that it's estimated that in general, in the UK, the average attention span of a young person is about eight minutes. So that means they can think or concentrate, they can listen to us for eight minutes, or they can read a book for eight minutes. And then on average, then they'll break off. And when you break off, you lose roughly the equivalent of the last three minutes worth of the last piece of mental work that you did. So if you're trying to do some, or write a report or study or do something and you're Mr. Average, for you, it's eight steps forward, three steps back, eight steps forward, three steps back. So it's no wonder being asked to write an essay at university is something that floors many people. Or, you know, equivalent in work, I have to go and read a report. Oh God, it's going to take ages. But you can improve attention span up to 45, 90 minutes without too much effort. And in that case, it's actually a benefit to have a break. Now, the fact that you lose three minutes worth out of 45 minutes is nothing, but you kind of get refreshed and then carry on. So the productivity improvement is dramatic, but so is the well-being improvement. You become much less anxious, much less stressed. And it's, 
It's the one area in, say, British education that it's don't see taught in schools. You know, we go around the world and in the States, it's quite common to see children being taught how to concentrate for longer. It's not that difficult to do. In fact, people actually do accidentally learn it, but don't really apply it everywhere. So if you ask that same adolescent whose attention span is eight minutes, how long can they concentrate on playing their favorite video game? It suddenly goes to hours. They have actually learned how to concentrate and how to focus, but nobody says, now think about what you're doing and apply it to writing the session. You know, turn it into a general skill, a skill that you can use at any time. I'm only using it when I'm playing my favorite video game. 